Hey everyone, it's Nate Laux, pastor of State Street Community Church and president of the PAC Center here in Laporte. Hey, thanks for listening to our monthly Discussion Over Dinner podcast. We're having a great time making these, and uh, we hope our friends and neighbors in Laporte are enjoying them as much as we are enjoying uh, creating them. And I have some good news and some bad news for you before we start our discussion today. Let me start with the bad news. So uh, this year we started uh, upgrading uh, our technology at State Street. We upgraded our sound equipment and we added a video suite that allows us to record our Sunday services and discussion over dinner. And um, it also allows us to like stream live on Facebook and these kind of things. It's been a great tool for us to put content in the hands of people that can't be with us every week for church or every month for discussion over dinner. However, we are not perfect. Uh, we're not perfect at running our technology and uh, we make mistakes. So we're still making some mistakes and one happened just this last Friday. Unfortunately, the first part of our discussion was cut off and didn't get recorded. Now that part was mostly just me welcoming everyone and giving shtick, and that's how my staff says, me just wasting time. But you won't hear that in this recording. You're gonna hear most of our conversation once the panel was introduced. And the recording picks up where Larry Smith from the Intrepid Phoenix is talking about his story, and it's definitely worth a listen, or at least I think so. Here's the great news. We started these events not knowing how people would respond to them. We believe that having conversations together is the best way to build community. Uh, We believe that these are good ideas, but we weren't sure if they would be accepted or if people would be as into them as we are. And so there's no better place to kind of talk about our shared experiences over a shared meal. Each month we have convened a panel of experts and community stakeholders that have opinions and knowledge and funny anecdotes and things like that about various topics that are relevant to uh, all of us in Laporte County. And the results have been three really beneficial and hopeful discussions that have left us all with a better understanding of the topic and hopefully some next steps for how we can all be better neighbors. And we really like at the end to ask all of our panelists what brings them hope because we believe that there is a poverty of hope in our community. Now, we plan on continuing discussion over dinner, so that's the good news. On September 14th, we will have a discussion over dinner about criminal justice and uh, the issues that you might see in Laporte, um, how we can understand Uh, the justice uh, people better, uh, the police, the court system and everything, but also um, how we can also advocate for those in those systems. So we've invited um, a defense attorney, Nelson Picardo. We've invited uh, Judge Greta Friedman, who runs the drug court here in LaPorte County. And we've invited a friend of mine, Sergeant Adam Hannon, of the LaPorte County Sheriff's Department. And I think you're gonna love this panel, I really do. And we wanna encourage you, ask questions. Don't be afraid, listen, uh, you text your questions in, we don't know who asked them. You can allow me to be uh, the person that, that sits with the awkward question. But we just wanna make sure that the conversations are happening. So here's what you can do for us. We hope you can spread the word about these conversations and participate either in person or online. Please like us on Facebook, share our content, like the videos on YouTube, or subscribe on iTunes or Google Play. Another thing you can do is give us a review, that helps as well. 
We believe that the art of good neighboring requires that we have to see each other and we have to hear from each other just to feel for each other. Now, when that happens, when we can hear each other, see each other and feel for each other, we believe that communities are transformed and we want to play whatever little part we can in helping that happen here in LaPorte County. So without further ado, here's our discussion over dinner on addictions with uh, Larry Smith, Dr. Suhel Nasser, and Paul Dranger. Enjoy. Discussion over dinner. This is our home. I came to listen to you, to talk with you. Discussion over dinner is sponsored and underwritten by State Street Community Church and the Pack Center. Uh, happened in April of last year, so I got busy. Um, I didn't go out looking for money. I just said I'm going to do it, and put my own money in. We launched um, in July. And we've grown now from that point, July, when it was just me, Jenny Becker. Jenny was one of our first members. Um, and we've now grown to 70 members. That's amazing. In, in one year. Uh, 85 if you count the spouses and kids, because they get a family uh, membership at the YMCA. Um, and we've got a softball team. Come on out and see us in the uh, co-ed park and rec league and uh, we do a lot of service work uh, with people uh, habitat for humanity and and other things um, so yeah so things have been we've been blessed to receive grants from the healthcare foundation duneland health and, and so forth and so on now we're looking to expand and do we just uh, signed an agreement with franciscan alliance which will expand us into lake county and porter county uh, and we're going to sign a deal with uh, Duneland YMCA. Uh, so we're going to be expanding what we do into Porter County and Lake County. That's great. Yeah, so things, th the guy was right. Looking back, you know, the guy was right. Just do it, Larry, and, and everything was just going to happen. So we've been, we've been truly blessed. That's great. Thank you, Larry. Paula, um, you uh, wear many hats. <laughs> um, you do. Uh, you are uh, you run your own uh, counseling center, um, but you also work at Valpo. Uh, why don't you explain a little bit about what you do for the people here? Sure. Um, one of the first things I did was um, I I started out uh, working for an agency, and I was never going to work with um, children who've been sexually abused. I was never going to work with um, with anything that had to do with that. And um, so when I started at this agency, they had, uh, they had the need for Medicaid uh, to work with children and Medicaid, because Medicaid group at the time was not paying much and um, nobody there wanted to necessarily work with children who've been sexually abused. So when it came time for that, they gave it to me. 
And that was the one thing, and I always say God does have a sense of humor uh, because that is the, um, the area. And I was like, I hadn't prepared for this, so I did volumes and volumes of research and really worked on it. And then I had an opportunity to go to Valparaiso University and work in their sexual assault awareness and facilitative education office. And I also, um, I tease I'm Greek, and we all like to work for ourselves. Um, so we had, a, I started uh, Choices Counseling, and um, we, it grew. We're now in Crown Point, we're in Valparaiso, we're in La Porte, and we're in Michigan City. And um, we continue to grow. And one thing that I also do then is I got involved in, uh, in substance abuse. And I got involved in that because I, I was really interested in, in the, the whole area. And then I had a client who just, um, he was drinking and drinking. And we, we were working on a plan. He came in one morning and said, I just had 35 beers tonight. And he said, I need help. You're right. And so I was like, okay, let's get you over to Porter Hospital, which was just a couple blocks away. Um, but he was not suicidal. Um, there was nothing there for them to keep him. And so um, and that's when I learned uh, the hard lesson that detox uh, facilities were, were pretty much non-existent. And it got worse, um, and I got involved with Porter County Substance Abuse Council and helped write that grant, uh, which is the uh, Drug-Free Communities Grant. Uh, but there, we also were trying to work to get um, substance uh, detox facilities. And as it went, I just continued to grow, and I had a chance to study under uh, Terry Gorski, and Terry's a pioneer. Um, in uh, substance abuse treatment, and he's um, the, the author of Synapse, which comes under SAMHSA. Um, and so I got involved a lot more in terms of substance abuse. Um, and I was very lucky, actually. Dr. Nasser has um, done um, a few of uh, a few studies, and he's taught us at the, at the counseling center. So I learned from, from him as well. Great. Thank you, Paula. Uh, Dr. Nasser, uh, again, a wonderful recommendation uh, from everyone I know. Um, can you explain a little bit for us here, what, what is an addiction and how can some, like how would you diagnose someone being an addict? Like what, what is the difference between, you know, they've got a problem or they don't, you know? Well, uh, thank you for having me here tonight and, I'm, and thank you all for coming out. This is very nice of you to spend your Friday evening here and not at the bar, which is a good idea. <laughs> which, there's like six of them right around us, so if you need suggestions. Uh, you know, the first thing about diagnosing anything in psychiatry is that it has to affect functioning. If, uh, so somebody could be drinking as much as they want to. I'm sorry to say that, Larry. But... Uh, uh, unless it affects their functioning, like they get fired from a job, then we label it as a diagnosis. So I know, th and, and that leaves a lot of gray areas, because mm -hmm. many people can be, uh, and I hear so much, well, he was a functioning alcoholic. He didn't have any problem. He just comes home on Friday night, and he drinks, and, and he wakes up on Monday to go back to work, and nobody sees him the, for the whole weekend, but he is working. He's providing for his family. 
That's an alcoholic, but the impact on his family is what makes it that there is a consequence for that behavior. So, so that's the basic thing about it. The biological part is that there is some craving. People really feel hijacked. Their brain is hijacked. They, they are no more their own people. They, they have to go and use the substance that they're addicted to. And the choice of substance usually depends on many factors, whether exposure to the drug or family history or the people that they've been with and so on. So this is uh, a very thing about who picks up alcohol, who picks up cocaine, who, who picks up meth. Uh, all of them work in the same way on the brain. And what happens once you, if you have the predisposition to it, which is the genetics, usually there's somebody in the family who has this, uh, and not only alcoholism or addiction, you can have depression, you can have bipolar disorder, any psychiatric illness. In fact, we're learning that the genes that uh, predispose to psychiatric illness are so common to schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, depression, ADD, OCD, addictions. So it is just, it depends on whether you do the behavior that would open up that gene to be copied over and over and over. And once you open it, then you have to live with the consequence for the rest of your life. You have to find a way to combat that. The ideal is to teach kids early on not to open that gene so it doesn't get copied. Because once they copy it, they're stuck with it. And they're stuck with having to figure out how do you counter that gene. Now, trauma is another predisposing factor also. We know that kids who have been ex exposed to sexual abuse, to they are more likely to be uh, substance abusers. And so prevention of sexual abuse is another major issue, prevention of trauma. And I know it takes different forms. For some it is food, for others it is alcohol, for others it is cocaine or meth or heroin. So it, it depends on other factors as to what drug they choose. But they have to have some craving and some withdrawal symptoms biologically to label it as addiction. Mm -hmm. um, and benzodiazepines is another thing. One of my first experiences ever with addictions actually was with a Saudi prince in Lebanon who, they're not allowed to drink there, but they drink cologne to, <laughs> to, to get the alcohol. And so they come in for surgery and suddenly they don't tell anybody they do this. And they go through the worst DTs you can imagine. Oh, wow. So uh, people choose some odd things sometimes to get used to. And then they learn to lie and to hide and, you know, all the things that addiction goes to. But it's not bad people, just that the addiction hijacks their brain. They're not themselves anymore. And so you get mad at them, you think they're goofy, you think they're lazy, you think. But in fact, their brain is not theirs anymore. So it's a matter of providing them some support through teamwork. And we were talking earlier about exercise. I, I recommend to everybody in this room and to all my patients and to myself, to walk 30 minutes every day nonstop. Because dopamine is the hormone of addiction. People want to get things that will give them more dopamine, and when they don't get it, they do whatever it takes to get another boost of dopamine. You can get this regularly produced in your brain by walking 30 minutes nonstop every day. You don't have to sweat, you don't have to change your clothes, you don't have to go anywhere. You can. You Watch clearly don't TV. know how I walk. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. <laughs> but 30 minutes nonstop every day is a fantastic uh, help 
for increasing your serotonin, your dopamine, for increasing the size of the hippocampus in your brain. You can grow new brain cells in your brain by walking. Even if you're 80 years old, you can still do that. So that's one very simple way to improve things. I totally support the idea of fitness. You, it really makes a big difference for recovery from addiction. I went all over the place so far. But no, you're good. Great, great. Uh, this is how conversations go. Yeah, go I was just going to ask about the slides and talking about the brain. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we can do that real quick. But I want to say, Larry. Thanks for the plug, doctor. As you say, that's what I was going to say. Larry, you just got a great plug, by the way. I, I, so. uh, I gave him 20 bucks before. <laughs> that's a pretty cheap. cheap. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Jason, do you have those slides that you can put up of Paula's real quick? She wanted to kind of point out some things about those. Um, and Paula, you can go through those if you'd like. All right, so we're looking at the dopamine levels uh, for natural rewards with um, food. So uh, the numbers you're going to see are basically very relative, okay? So it, at this, it's showing where it will shoot up to 150, um, and we're looking in terms, again, in, in, of dopamine levels. Next. Go to the next one. Okay, sex, if you can see, it goes up a little bit more there over towards the 200, so... Uh, pizza and sex would really go real well. So, <laughs> <laughs> next slide. If you're awake for it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, also, I want to point out here in terms of the morphine um, and what they're also trying to show is the number of hours. So, if you see, morphine has a gradual increase in terms of level of dopamine, and it lasts a lot longer, and then um, it levels off. Next. Okay, nicotine, if you see, there's that, that spike, and then, and then it pretty much starts to um, level up. So that's why, is that why smokers have to smoke often then? Because it, Correct. it gives them that spike. Correct. Okay, cocaine. Now, if you look at, and again, we're looking at the red dots, but if you look, it is just a jump. Um, and it is as quickly as it goes up, it seems to also start to go down. Now, at that level, I believe we're at like 400. Mm -hmm. Okay. Again, much more dopamine than if you notice the, the regular um, exercise, I mean, the regular uh, food and, and sex never even gets that high. Mm -hmm. Next. Okay. Meth. We're looking at amphetamines. That's at 1,100. Again, looking at relative, you start at 150 with food, and there is that spike. And just as quick as it goes up, it just crashes down. Um, and that, that gives you a little sense in terms of the, of the brain and the differences. How your brain... Um, I, I have a question for the two of you that are on the, the, the medical side, but also the clinical side here. So... Uh, uh, obviously, we, we hear a lot about addiction and stuff in our community. We read the stories. Uh, Paula, you've said you've been doing this since the 90s. Is that right? That's and right. I assume Dr. Nasser for a little bit longer than that. Um, Thank you. Yeah. Are you seeing the amount of people addicted changing or just the types of addictions changing? Yeah, I think the types of addictions and the media, you know, the, the, whole, the whole point is that the media has been advertising a lot more about it. And, and, you know, the other part is the sad thing about heroin overdoses. When people used to drink, they would drink and they would have complications over time, but you don't hear the sudden deaths of young people. 
that you have one after the other falling down just because they overdose on the, on the drugs. And I think that's why we, we hear about it more. Whether there is more of it in numbers, there is some data that shows, yes, there is an increase in the... But we've had this in psychiatry in all conditions because finally psychiatry has come to the foreword in terms of people accepting it and knowing that, it, that psychiatric illnesses exist. So you have more depression recognized, more schizophrenia, more bipolar, more ADD, more, uh, and more addiction. So some of it is the increased uh, diagnostic accuracy that we have also and being willing to talk about it because everybody in the past used to hide it. People smoked when it was okay to smoke. You had it in the movies. People would light up the cigarettes and smoke and encourage it. Now, now we know it's a bad addiction. It's very hard to kick. Uh, so the culture has changed mm -hmm. and that has shown the numbers more. But the death of young people hurts. It really hurts to see them die like that. I think one of the things that I'm um, amazed with is um, that there continues to be science and chemistry that will take drugs and then create these synthetics that um, it gets worse and worse and worse. And so I think that's one of the, the tougher things. And you also see people willing to um, start, I mean, willing to do a lot of different things. Um, and you'll hear about the pill parties. And um, when you look at pot, it's not just the regular pot anymore. It's not even the, um, we used to say it's not the pot of the 70s. It's not the pot of 2000 either. Um, they're putting fentanyl in it. They put all kinds of things um, that, that continuously make um, even what you would say, okay, pot, but it is, it, it, you, it can get deadly. And also you start to see um, where, where people are, um, they're starting younger. So I'm getting developmental issues. Um, so I see somebody who's, you know, 28, 29, but started, you know, uh, smoking pot at 13, drinking, um, and, and moving forward, forward up that ladder. And um, we find that where they really started using um, consistently um, is where they kind of stop developmentally. And so you may be looking at a 14-year-old who's 28. And so I'm seeing so much more of that. So you've got so much more mm -hmm. to address mm -hmm. um, in terms of trying to get people to move forward in that developmental level to adulthood. So let me add something about developmental. There's a very smart guy, his name is Kandel, Dr. Kandel. He has the Nobel Prize in Medicine. He published a very interesting study with mice that shows that smoking nicotine in adolescence is the gateway drug, actually. Nicotine. People were thinking that it is marijuana that was the gateway drug. The people start with that and move on to something else. But he showed very convincingly in animal experiments, but also his wife is an epidemiologist who had noticed that uh, connection, and so he went to the lab and showed that, in fact, nicotine. So anything we can do to prevent teenagers from having access to nicotine would be a very big first step in stopping the cycle that goes on for further from there. Interesting. That's an interesting study. Um, Larry, I, I, I want to talk you a little bit um, because your story is a little bit different in that when when we 
see movies or, you know, when we think of those who have an alcohol problem, we think of those guys who are living on the streets or something like that. You, you had a white-collar job. You were an executive. You were doing very, very well. Um, w- w- can you look back at your life and say, okay, this is where my addiction was born, or is it just something that you had to one day look and say, oh, wow, I'm, I am thrown into the deep end of this addiction? Um, thank you, Nate. I think there's a, uh, Paula mentioned age. I remember that, and doctor talked about family genetics, and, and, you know, my family were drank, and I remember stealing my first two beers in junior high out of my dad's fridge in the basement, running out into the woods with a buddy, right? And, and we gather a lot of data, um, in the intrepid phoenix and when i look at the the age that people started using drugs it's it's usually around that age group that 11 to 13 14 age um there's a common theme there but funny thing is you know shortly after that those two beers me and my buddy were in front of the liquor store in the small town like incognito like you know nobody would know you know Leighton and Laverne Smith's son with money to buy Boone's Farm apple wine. Um, High class? Yeah, yeah. Some of the more mature folks in the group will understand Boone's Farm. Um, My my point there, my point there, and, and, you know, when I I was in junior high, hard to imagine, I was short and fat, and I got bullied a lot. so for me, it, not, none of this I knew when it was going on, right? But now looking back, being in recovery, reflecting on my life, and, and you know, it's pretty clear. Um, but the cool kids that were drinking and smoking and all that, right? Wow. So I, I, I started migrating to that cool group. Thankfully, at the same time I did that, I also got into sports. And, and and pulled me away from for for many years from being in that cool group but that was a f- fork in the road for me um but i drank i started when i was 13 i drank for 40 years um you know when when we when we talk about drinking and doing drugs you know people talk about well, I'm trying to escape reality. I'm, I, you know, I don't want to deal with my emotions. I don't want to deal with life, so I escape with a drug or alcohol, right? When I started out on my journey, it was about having fun. It was about how much more fun can we have if we drink, right? We didn't want to, we didn't want to like sit in a chair and go, uh, like, we wanted to go out running around having fun. Um, so... But at some point, so I always drank, right? But I think the doctor made a good point that I have three daughters and and I was a good father, raised them and and supported them. And alcohol wasn't number one in my life at that point. So through many, many years, my daughters were, 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 that was it. You know, having, being a father, being, you know, uh, and and having good jobs and all that. but at some point, alcohol moved up that priority ladder 
for me. And it became clearly number one. Um, my tale of woe I won't bore you with, but divorce, three jobs. The job here was the third job. And when I came, and I never drank at work. So this was, this was all after hour stuff. And, and I remember driving to Laporte, moving to Laporte, saying, alcohol will not interfere with this job. This is my last chance, and this is it. Well, we know, what, <laughs> we know how that story ended, right? So for many years, I knew I had a problem. I knew I was powerless to do anything over it. And, and you know, when you, when you deal with people in addiction, I'm very active in the recovery community. I do meetings at the jail tomorrow morning for, for inmates and, and work release and drug-free partnership, et cetera, et cetera. Um, they talk about you got to hit your bottom until an addict hits their bottom. Unfortunately, the statistics in recovery are not good. Only 10% of people who try to recover do with any kind of long-term The good news is the longer they're clean and sober, the higher their chances are. Um, but for many years, I knew I had a problem. I knew I was powerless to do anything over it. And my life, in my low point, where I'm going with that was sitting, sitting um, you know, I was going to say I'm ashamed to say, but I'm not. S sitting, sitting there one Saturday morning after promising myself I would not drive to the blue chip, being a single guy, and driving home in a blackout. To, to this day, how people can operate a vehicle at 70 miles an hour in a blackout just floors me. I don't know how that's possible. And I promised myself I wouldn't do it, and I did it again. And I, and I, and I sat there, and, and I said, I guess I'm just going to be a drunk. That's just who Larry Smith's going to be. That was my low point. The other, the other thing for me was um, I remember at that same time thinking there's something missing in my life. There's a hole I can't, I couldn't put my finger on it, but there was something missing. Now looking back, I know what it is. It was God and, and my spiritual, I had no relationship with God. Um, and I found that in recovery. So, um, but that period where you know you have a problem and you know you're powerless to do anything over it and, and your life's falling apart, that is, that is hell. That is just miserable, miserable. And, and anybody who's been addicted, who's gone through that, knows what I'm talking about. Um, yeah. You know, the seduction of, of the... The experience that you described, Larry, is that uh, your friends that drank with you that day, I don't know if they are alcoholic or not, actually. Do you, do you know? If what, they became alcoholic, the guys that you, that you drank with as a kid? In junior high? No, even younger than that. Or in junior high, yeah. Do you know uh, how? I, I'm, I'm guessing, I'm, I, I, I don't know you about don't know the junior sure. high, but through it, in high school and college and, and friends I had along the way, Yes, I, I'm looking back now, knowing what I know, I would say many are. Because the seduction of addiction, actually, or, or any substance use, is that not everybody who tries cocaine would get addicted to it. Not everybody who smokes becomes addicted. Not everybody who drinks becomes addicted. So 
you drink with your friends and you think you're going to be just like them. They, they get away with it because their genes are not there. They didn't have the, the substance abuse. They didn't have the family dynamics that contributes to the addiction process. And then you become addicted while they're not. I see it all the time in college because you have a lot of these college kids who drink a lot. Freshman year is notorious because they, they're out of their family's observation and they can do whatever they want. And so y you can see some of them get more in trouble than others. And then they say, well, he can drink. How come I can't? And, and I say, Bec because you have a lot of factors that contribute to you becoming an alcoholic that is not true for the others. And I think that's where the risk is. Somebody said, well, I, I, I smoked, I drank, I don't have a problem. So that minimizes the addiction, the concept that this is a disease that some people are born with and they have to face it just like you face diabetes or hypertension. Yeah, if I can um, add in terms of the biology, what, what we find out about alcoholism, for example, is that um, you're looking at quantity and frequency um, in biology. So for instance, um, there are those whose, um, where their parents or grandparents, aunts and uncles, when there's a familial um, line there, um, you, the amount of quantity and frequency is less before you can become what I would say cross over into alcoholism. Well, the same is with um, substance, I mean with um, diabetes, the same as with heart disease as you were saying. And there's a, there's a good book, it's um, on campus talking about um, alcohol. And, and that's where they really get into the fact that um, they look at, they put together a lot of different studies that have been out there. One of the things they looked at was um, if you're adopted and um, you come, you're adopted and uh, neither your uh, biological or adoptive parents are alcoholics, how much more are you likely to be an alcoholic than anybody else I would pluck out of the general population? And um, the answer is no more likely than anybody in the population. But then they looked at the adoptive parents um, who were al who might be alcoholics, but the biological parents were not, and they were no more likely to be an alcoholic than anybody else you would pluck out of the general population. Then they looked at biological parents and who were alcoholics, but the um, the adoptive parents were not, and they were four times more likely to be an alcoholic than anybody else you would pluck out of the, the population. So they, they did look at that. And they looked at twin studies, though, identical twins. So if one identical twin has blue eyes, the other identical twin will have blue eyes. Um, because that, in terms of that's the gene that they, they, they share. Um, but they found that looking at alcoholism, it was 50-50, about 50%. So that's here to give you some hope that says it is not set in stone. But that's when quantity and frequency comes in. The younger you start, the more you start to drink, and you know, the more it becomes a part of your fabric of yours, the social life, and the more it goes on, you're adding that quantity and frequency. And if the biology is not good for you, you, you know, that's how some people seem to be able to um, drink, drink, and not much happens, and some do, and it does, Tom. Okay, let's get to your guys' questions. There's a lot of really good questions coming in, and I think they're going to start serving uh, dessert now, which is uh, apple crisp, so enjoy. 
Um, here's a question that comes in. I'm a recovering addict from cocaine and heroin. Been sober now since November 2007. Is it possible that even though I have been sober for almost 11 years, is it normal to still have urges and cravings? Oh yeah, absolutely. Absolutely, because you can, the smell of some place, the color of some place, the, the, the people that you're into are all triggers. Be, and what happens is that your brain develops these receptors that are dependent on this kick that you get mm -hmm. from the drug. And so every time you see somebody like this, or you, or you hear a song or whatever, you trigger that feeling that those receptors become active again. And so they make you more anxious. And what you do with anxiety, unless you've developed good coping skills, exercise, and uh, a support group, then you're likely to go back and use what you normally use. So yes, you're at risk forever. Always be careful, forever, until the last day. Never let your guard down. You can, I've seen people relapse after 27 years. Mm -hmm. And it was the worst relapse you can ever think of. Just never take it for granted. Can, can I, uh, I'm sorry, Paul, can I, can I jump in? I'm just going to share my own personal experience and then what I've seen. Um, for me, at some point in my recovery, and, and I attribute it to God, removed the obsession and the craving for me to drink. Um, so I, I, I see advertisements, you know, I see, tr you talk about triggers, right? The tr Early in recovery, I had to deal with those triggers. You know, how am I going to go golfing without beer? How am I going to barbecue without beer, right? How am I going to watch a, a football game without beer, right? So, so I had to learn. But at some point for me, that obsession and that craving went away. Now, the thoughts still come. So the, not the thought of, I want to go drink, but... The thought, I, I will always be an alcoholic for the rest of my life. So for me, what I think about is staying close to my recovery program. And what I see being active in recovery here, in, for heroin, and I mean all drugs and alcohol, you talk about relapse. People relapse, there's a common theme that I've seen, people relapse when... They stop going to meetings. They stop exercising, if that's part of their routine. They stop doing the things that are keeping them clean and sober. And then relapse is possible, more possible, more likely for somebody who does, is not staying very close to their recovery program. That's, that's what I've observed. And I would also say in terms of um, understanding the, the difficulty of this um, um, opiate addiction, alcoholism, there are many levels. And so some of those levels we're looking at the, the, as a brain disease, we're looking at um, uh, there there's needs to be a commitment to sobriety first. And then there's becomes the commitment to a sober lifestyle. And those are two different things. So it's really important that you work towards that. Um, and, and also, I, had work, I was working with a, a guy who's a heroin addict. And one of the things we do with drug court, we're supposed to come up with essays for our, for our clients. And I was asking, 
name some of the, you know, the triggers you kind of run into, the things that get you thinking about cravings. And it, it really amazed me. It was the crinkle of uh, plastic wrap. It was aluminum foil. It was just the everyday things that are in a household. Mm -hmm. They all carried for him cravings. So as Dr. Nasser said, you have to really be vigilant. Learn how to identify this. So you asked us to talk about hope. Yeah. So let's talk about the treatments that are out there okay. and, and the options. So for craving, there is a very simple supplement actually called NAC, N-A-C, that you can buy in a vitamin store. NAC seems to replace the glutamate, which is that excitatory neurotransmitter that makes people want to go back and use. So by taking NAC every day, there is a lesser chance of people having the craving. Really? Uh, then we talk about the treatments that are available. There is, uh, there is the Suboxone, there is the Vivitrol. There are things that are now medically available that have been shown to help with the uh, chance of relapse. Mm -hmm. All of them start with you have to be sober first, and of course you have to have the will, the desire, the support system. It's not only the medication. But there are some things that are available now that help people, so they're not stuck with it uh, forever. And yeah. I Good. just wanted to add one last thing, and that is um, also understand there's a post-acute withdrawal syndrome or pause, and that can be cravings that you would have for up to two years into sobriety. So a very sensitive period of time then. One, one final thought. There, there is power in fellowship and and um, I know from firsthand that the fellowship of recovery programs of that's what we are a fitness fellowship of AA NA whatever you're in um, that power of that fellowship is is very strong yes you have other things that, that are, are also good but to be able to pick up the phone, and, and I know you're an alcoholic, and I know, you, you know, and I can, hey, Paula, and, and it may not even be, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm standing in the liquor store looking at vodka. Mm -hmm. It may be, hey, I'm dealing with this in life, um, and, and I'm getting a resentment, and it's making me angry, and how, how do I deal with this? Because when an addict or an alcoholic is active, we don't, we don't deal with anything. We don't deal with emotions. We don't deal with life. We avoid that. Now, now we have to deal with, wow, you made me mad. You have to learn new coping mechanisms. New right? coping mechanisms. And that's where the fellowship comes in of somebody that's been sober long to be able to say, hey, how do I deal with this? Because I know if I don't do something about it, I'm going to start down a, a bad path. Does that make sense? So the fellowship, I think, is very powerful. Now, people with addiction have, uh, and notice, I, I don't say addicted people, I say people with addiction, because it's a disease, like saying somebody who says, I'm diabetic. No, you are a person with diabetes, so a person with addiction. Uh, the, the relapse depends also on consequences. So they're part of families, part of community. If there is no consequence for this person to go back and use, the chances of using again will be increased. I'm part of the Physician Assistance Committee for the state of Indiana. We watch over physicians who are addicted. 
And we know that when we give them a 10-year contract where their license is on the line, if they, if they relapse, they're much more likely to stay sober than if we give them a five-year license. So uh, we know there are consequences. If, if there are consequences for physicians, they're more likely to stay sober. For people in general who have addictions, if there are no consequences for relapse, so that's where families need to go get some help also with uh, any support group they can think of from CODA to, because the codependency and the, and the support system that has to be not only the fellowship of the program, but the family support is also needed. Let's move on to a question uh, to deal with families actually is if you, let's say you, you have a child and the child, either you're an addict or your spouse or your partner's an addict, and so you know that child might, or a person with addiction, very good correction, I like that. Uh, um, that's going to take a while for me to correct. I, I will, I for promise everybody you, in the country, I will, no. I will, <laughs> I am going to own that. But, um, so if your spouse or you are, are a person with addiction and you don't want your children to, to suffer through that same addiction, are there things that you could do that can help that child so that they don't, you know, suffer some of this? Oh, yeah, fantastic question. Yes, and, and I'm sure you can say a lot more about that, Paula. But there's a very good study, actually, with teenagers who are at risk, showing that uh, teaching them coping skills early on in life reduces their chance of uh, developing psychiatric illness or addiction. Uh, at a, they become the same as people who come from families with no addictions. If you, if you take the time with kids, teach them coping skills, stress management, expressing their emotions, exercise, it, you really can make a difference despite the genetic load. And this kind of goes back to our first discussion over dinner. Those of you that were here, um, we talked about the increase in anxiety. We had a principal here from Riley Elementary and he talked about the increase in anxiety that he sees in children and not knowing how to cope well. And, um, and so trying to include that as part of the education for the whole self, right? Because if we don't teach kids to cope, it's going to be really difficult for them to succeed academically as well. Paula, do you have any, uh, anything to add there? Right, and I, I will tell you that um, we've listed probably 50 different coping skills. The one, only thing that ever drives me nuts about hearing coping skills is when somebody says we're working on coping skills. Mm -hmm. There's all kinds of different coping skills. Mm -hmm. So making sure, you know, exercise is a way of coping. Sure. Um, meditation's a way of coping. Um, being able to handle um, people who disagree with you is a way of coping. So there's, there's so many different ways of coping. And I think that the best thing a parent can do is for them to also make sure they're getting help they're learning specific coping skills and building it so that you have a toolkit full of things that you can use at various times. Great, great, great feedback. Um, another question here. Uh, what percentage of addiction is actually self-medication for depression and other chemical imbalance issues? Oh, if we had the, the answer to this, we'll, I'll win the Nobel Prize here. Uh, it's such a tricky thing because, yes, many people, if you look at ADD, everybody says, well, you know, this is a over-diagnosed over maybe, but in general, I think it's still underdiagnosed because people self, they treat themselves with stimulants and downers to regulate their 
their, their distractibility. We have very good data, actually, that shows that treating ADD reduces the chance of addiction to the same rate as the general population. But if you leave it untreated, they have like 30% of them would, have, would develop addictions versus only 12%, which is the general risk. And the, so, so yes, it is such a common thing. In bipolar disorder, if untreated, somebody is manic, excited, can't sleep, they get hooked on downers, and then they get down, and they get hooked on uppers, and then pretty soon they're taking both together and then try to sort out which is which. Mm -hmm. It's a challenge for us in psychiatry. Yeah, and I, w I would also say, too, about um, ADHD is that then it's difficult to do um, well in school. And so if you're in school, if you're somewhere six hours a day and you're not doing well in it, you just don't want to be there. And so you're going to look for other ways to um, be able to feel successful and other ways to um, socialize. So I, I totally um, see that in terms of ADHD. And, and I'm also seeing another study that talked about anxiety, that oftentimes anxiety, uh, it's important to, and I, I defer to you, Dr. Nasser, but it, I was reading that it's important to defer to make sure that you have, um, is it anxiety, is it ADHD, because sometimes those behaviors um, resemble one another. Um, we will now start referring to Dr. Nasser's future Nobel Prize winning <laughs> Dr. Nasser. Um, uh, this, is a, this is a great question here because as we talk about uh, marijuana legalization all around the country, it seems to be where things are going. Is marijuana a deterrent from heavy drugs as reported from states where marijuana is legal and not a stepping stone? Terrible decision. That's all I can. Uh, you think mar marijuana? We have legal all night. Yeah. To tell you about so all the damages that. from why, marijuana. Why do you think a mar marijuana legalizing, or do you think uh, legalizing alcohol was a bad decision too? Yes. Uh, okay. Well, you know, it's a question of uh, the effect of alcohol is different than the effect of marijuana. Marijuana numbs people, makes them very lethargic, lacking motivation, lacking the desire to do anything. That's why. It's so bad for society, and it, I cannot believe that we're localizing this, because the effect on motivation is the, the, the we, we call it the amotivational syndrome, basically from marijuana, because they smoke, ah, I'm all right, but that's what happens then day and night. They're just thinking, hey, I'm all right, everything is fine, why do I need to go to work? And so this is a terrible thing that we're doing to our society. I wonder about our productivity as a, as a nation when, when we're allowing this to go on. And people say, yeah, it makes me feel good at the time. Yes, of course, but maybe if you develop other ways of feeling good, go exercise instead. Mm -hmm. You get your body moving, you get your brain moving, you grow brain cells instead of numbing your brain cells. But I think I should stop at this yeah, point. Yeah, I, I think we touched a nerve here. Um, but I, I would definitely agree with Dr. Nasser. I will say this, too, though. Um, your frontal cortex is continuing to develop up through 27 years old. So that is the new adolescent age, up to 27. Um, and oh, that, I'm going to have my kids for so long. Okay. <laughs> But um, one of the things is uh, that I'm concerned is, again, younger children, um, and, and if you can go up till 27 and not smoke, that would be great. But, but the fact is, is that, um, again, you're, you're, when you're smoking pot, 
you're always doing going towards the um, the primal brain, the primitive brain, and so um, the part here that has logic and and thinking, that's the part that's still growing, and and you can. Um, slow that growth down um, tremendously. And the second part that I really have a problem with in terms of uh, uh, marijuana is that they're continuously adding to it. They now have a marijuana oil that is, is so much more um, concentrated. And, and it's chemistry now. This has become a, you know, a world of just what can we do now chemistry-wise to this? Um, how can we make this pot even more... Um, um, just more uh, virile, and the the last part is that you also um, have things that they're putting with the pot, and again, like fentanyl is, is an example. Um, I uh, I think uh, this is a, a great question um, for those of us that love addicts or have addicts in our family, and and, and maybe Larry, you have a Maybe there was somebody. Or people with addiction. Sorry. Uh, uh, we'll get there. We'll get there. I'm a work in progress, everyone. For those of us that have people with addictions, uh, for those of us that love people with addictions, for those of us that are uh, people with addictions, um, and Larry, maybe you have something to add to this, or maybe you. Is tough love a deterrent? Is tough love help? You know, when people would, would then, you know, or is the best response to those with addiction, grace, empathy, you know, where, where, do, you, where do you go from there? You know, that's, that must be a question that's raised by somebody who's in a family of addiction. Because that, that maintains the same concept that one thing will fix it. It's not a question of saying tough love. It depends on the situation. It depends on the individuals. Addiction is like that, is that people feel that taking that cocaine is going to make everything all right. That if I drink enough, I'll be, everything will be fine. Defining a simple solution. There is no simple solution. Tough love can help in some situations. It can hurt in other situations. Yeah? There, there's no simple answer to mm -hmm. it, as far as I'm concerned. You guys deal I with it. Uh, first yeah, it, it, I agree with you, doctor. There's no, there's no one single answer to that. It depends on the circumstances. Um, I, I will tell you that um, we, we have kind of a running joke that, uh, and it's not really a joke, but if somebody's actively using or somebody's actively drinking, there's, there's one thing for sure. They are a liar because an addict will do rob, cheat, steal. Person with addiction. Person with Get addiction. Get him. Get him. Get him. God, I was just going to thank you, doctor, for all the plugs on exercise, too. How dare you, Larry? I want my $20 back. <laughs> uh, person with addiction, thank you. Um, and because an, as an alcoholic, and again, just talking from personal experience, I who did I lie to? I lied to myself. I lied to my wife. I lied to my doctor. I lied to my family. Of all the people in the world not to lie to, don't you think those would be the ones you wouldn't lie to? Right? So having said that, I see a lot of, a lot of 
I think there's a time and a place for tough love under the circumstances. I think that depending on the circumstances, um, there's a time to just say no more, right? Because you can cross into a, a scenario, and I've seen it, uh, of enabling. And then you're just facilitating the, the continued addiction. Um, so yeah, there, uh, in my opinion, for what it's worth, in, from just real life experience, I can tell you stories and stories where a grandparent or a parent has just said, nope, that's it, you're done, you're out of my life, as long as you're using, and, and, or whatever it is, and, and because at some point self-preservation for the family has to kick in, and they have to take care of themselves, but again, under the circumstances, I'm talking about you know, robbing and cheating and, and, and you know, all, a lot of bad, really bad behavior. Yeah, yeah and that, that is the hard thing, right? There's no, like, okay, when this happens, you're done, right? I mean, that, yeah. that's the hard thing, you know? I, I do have a message to, to um, family, and that, that is um, if you're going to be of help, try to be of help for them um, driving them to a meeting. Um, if they don't have a, a car, um, take them as they go and try to get a job. Uh, so think about the wellness wheel, think about social, uh, physical, psychological, intellectual, um, their jobs, vocational and spiritual. Um, take them to church with you. Um, but, but do those kind of things. And, um, and when you have that love, you also know that tough love is when they're saying, give me 50 bucks or I need 30 bucks or, or um, you know, I want to do what I want to do and I'm not going to a meeting, but I'm going to live in your home. That's when maybe tough love is, is, um, has a place. But there's so many other things we could be doing that will help them in, the, in their doing, knowing at some point it stops where, where they have to take the next step, though. I agree, I agree. Um, and, and at the at the end of the day, some in some scenarios, you, as you know, the only thing I could do it for somebody maybe just to be there for them and pray for them. And, and at some point, that's 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 all I can do for somebody. Here's a, another question that that came in. Uh, I had my last drink, July fourteenth. Congratulations, whoever this is, or if you're watching online, thank you. Congratulations. Bastille Day. I love to drink socially. I don't crave it at all. I had three blackouts prior to this date in a short time. How do you know if you are an alcoholic? Since I don't crave it, just miss it when I'm out socially. Anybody, Larry? Anybody? The question about consequences for the alcohol. Was there any consequences? Why did you stop on July 14th? And, but, so if, if indeed you're not alcoholic, why did you feel that you have to, to stop? And why are you negotiating three, three beers and, or two glasses of wine? Or, that's already negotiating with the, with the devil. Pretty soon it will be four and then five and then you stop counting. And so I would like to know what happened on July 14th? When what were the consequences of the drinking that made you decide to stop on July 14th? That would be that. That would be my thing. Yeah, and I'll also tell people, and it's a little flippant, I'll say, well, let's go six months first, and then let's have that conversation again. 
because um, we get people a lot of times who say, oh, I could quit drinking. Okay, we'll do it for a year and then let's, let's see. If you really can't quit, look what a year does. And I think at that point you, you, you can begin to see when, um, that you will, um, you will not be able to handle that year and hopefully that starts to raise a flag. There, there's a line in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous that says if, if you have doubts that you're an al truly an alcoholic and you have a problem, why don't you go out and try some controlled drinking? And, and if you are an alcoholic like me, right, that's going to end up in disaster. There's actually online, too, you can get a quiz. I think I found a quiz, 14 questions, you know, if you're an alcoholic. I think I aced it, the only quiz in my life I ever aced, 100%. <laughs> but there's, there's, there, are some, there are some behaviors that may likely, you may likely be one. But at the end of the day, only the individual can decide. Only I can decide for myself if I'm an alcoholic. If I'm, uh, uh, now the doctor might disagree because I'm not from the clinical side, so I don't know. There might be other things, but only I can decide if I have a problem with alcohol and that I'm an alcoholic, and that I believe that. So only he can decide, right? Blackouts are certainly a sign. Or, or she. He or she, sorry. Um, a, what is it? Um, a, person a person with addiction. With addiction. Thank you. Um, but, but there are signs. There's, there's blackouts are certainly a sign that you might have a problem. Um, binge drinking, you know, the statistics on binge drinking are, are, are going through the roof. Um, um, you know, how, how often do you drink? You know, how, when you drink, can you, can you stop? You know, I, I was joking with a pastor at another church, and he said, yeah, well, I can have one or two beers and then not touch beer for 30 days. You know, we had a party at the house, and I had two beers, and that was it. He said, I said... I'm the guy in the kitchen <laughs> chugging two beers and emptying the ones that are, you know. Uh, so so uh, that was a little alcoholic humor there, Nate. <laughs> but but my, point, my point is only the individual can, based on the circumstances, right, um, decide. But there are signs, you know, binge drinking, how often do you drink, and, and, and more. Paula, let's get into some therapy real quick, okay? okay. Um, I and my children were emotionally, mentally, and physically abused by my alcoholic ex-husband. Even though I, it was the year 2000, we all still have scars. Um, I have trust issues, anxiety, and some PTSD. My son works out because he is an alcoholic. My daughter has lost her faith. What would you say to this family? I would say that... Um unless you deal with the trauma, um, it will continue to dog you. And anything you bury is still alive. So um, it's really important to get yourself into counseling and really address, you know, go somewhere where you feel comfortable with the therapist. Go where you feel that you will be totally honest because um, trauma is scary. And you want to know that you trust the therapist before you start um, you know, unveiling all that, um, and and I would I would definitely look at family and look at individual. You know, I would add to this since we are in a church, the spiritual dimension to this as well. 
which is always to look at a higher power and a way of looking beyond ourselves into a, a stronger uh, support system that's always there and figure out how to learn forgiveness, how to learn acceptance, how to see them for what they are, even though you were traumatized, but also realize that they were sick people and that they are suffering and they suffered and yes, they that suffering did cause some consequences. So, uh, again, if I were to use somebody who is diabetic, let's say, or somebody who has diabetes. Uh, a person that has a, diabetes. A, a person, see, I, I, even <laughs> I even catch myself very quickly. Uh, <laughs> uh, so I'm glad everybody's getting it here. This is <laughs> good. <laughs> we're all leaving with that. If nothing else, we're leaving with so, that. So you can imagine that, you know, if you live with somebody who has any serious uh, physical disease, it has an impact on everybody in the family. And yes, there is some trauma from it. But somehow we're more accepting of somebody having a severe physical illness than if they have a severe addiction. And so uh, let's learn to change our mindset and look at a at the higher power as a way to understand our place in in life. And, and is there, Dr. Nasser, is there a connection between poverty and addiction? I don't know about that. I, you know, I don't know about statistics with that. Maybe Paula keeps track of this more than I do, but I think it affects everybody. I mean, think of it: the founder of AA was a physician. So <laughs> the the guy who owned Kemper Insurance, who helped so many people w with his recovery by asking insurance companies to pay for substance abuse treatment back in the 80s, he was the CEO of Kemper Insurance. Very you said you're, you're helping doctors who are addicted. I'm helping physicians, yeah. There's a good deal of them in, this, uh, in the state of Indiana. So we have, you know, it affects everybody. I don't know if, it, if poverty is the issue. Now, some people who have addictions to drugs that are expensive become poor just because they hawk everything to and they steal and they get into all kinds of issues just to pay for their uh, drugs. And that may be a secondary, the poverty is secondary to the abuse rather than the cause of the abuse. Do you know any statistics, Paula? Yeah, I would say that it can very much be secondary to it because it, it um, reaches every, it, all social um, levels. Mm -hmm. is, there, um, is there an addiction that's harder to treat than others? I think, I think meth is probably um, one of the hardest to to deal with um, because of the the spike that it correct correct. Well, I say nicotine, uh, especially in women. There is a differential gender effect also on nicotine addiction between men and women. So uh, that is very hard. That's very hard to uh, stop. Uh, and also because the, and the consequences for it are not as immediate. With meth, you can blow your uh, camper where you've been, been cooking it, and you know there is a problem. <laughs> 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 and there is a consequence to it. <laughs> there, 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 there was a slight stereotype there, but... <laughs> but... <laughs> And in fact, the slides that, uh, that Paula showed is really the whole issue about addiction. You can, there's a very nice study that was done that showed 
people a series of cards and embedded in those cards was very quickly a card they, they, they couldn't even see but the but the card was there about somebody who is snorting cocaine and their dopamine went up like that just from their brain seeing it even though they didn't recognize it when they they show people with food addiction a slice of chocolate their cocaine their dopamine went up <laughs> it, it is fascinating how quickly the brain is conditioned to get these responses. So the quicker the uptake and then the quicker the drug is what makes people more dependent on the drug because they crave it right away. Amphetamine, and that's why they're they're not addictive for the people with the ADHD. They're addictive for people who use them for fun. What's the state of treatment in LaPorte County? We don't have addictions in this county. Hmm. <laughs> uh, I, I say this. I, I say this because I have recommended certain people to, to, that, that have come to me and said, hey, I need help. I've given them two or three or four resources, and everyone is full. You know, um, this doctor's not seeing any new patients. This place doesn't have any openings to see them. Is there a shortage of, of you know, treatment, people I, helping with treatment? What I said have jokingly was, the, I say it in, uh, in, in the hospital setting, is that we don't offer substance abuse treatment because we, we deny that it exists. And so, therefore, they, we must not have any problems. Mm -hmm. When in fact it's all over the place, and yes, there is a huge shortage of availability for services. I, I think one thing that um, research has shown is that you have to have a warm handoff as you go from um, one uh, phase of addiction to another. So for instance, um, when you have detox, they're calling now and making sure that there is a counseling center to send somebody to and that they know what that date is. So there needs to be that warm handoff from detox to the to counseling and then to um, aftercare. And, um, and also to also look at a lot of other resources. So there is the Intrepid Phoenix. There is um, other areas in which you can get meditation. So um, the idea is we really need, um, I think one of, the, one of the biggest things we need is a step to step to step where people know because I have talked to so many people who feel like they got somebody in therapy and then it you know and then they stopped and that was that so it, it, it again I would say we're looking at two years easy um, in terms of needing care that's not here uh, Larry you're, you're involved in the, the the nonprofit world as I am that's how we know each other what are you seeing with services, kind of like the Intrepid Phoenix and things like that? Do you see a decent amount in Laporte, or is there need? Do they need more? Well, um, there's definitely a gap between the need and what we have, uh, and I know this firsthand. Um, that um, you know, I could tell you story after story. Like you, I get calls. You know, oh, I tried to get my son. He's 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 ready to quit. He's got a detox off heroin. I've called eight places in Indiana, and we, he doesn't have insurance, so they won't take him. Right. So right there, when the, there, in addiction recovery, 
the time to make the biggest impact is when the addict person with addiction. Woohoo! Woohoo! Nailed it, baby. Hey. Nailed it. We're works in progress, Nailed buddy. It. I know. Hey, I'm okay with that. Progress, not perfection. When they raise their hand and say, I want help, right? That's, How big is that window? That's the moment. It might be, it might be a small window. It might be a, a couple moments. But when that person says to a family or says to anybody, I want help, every, every resource has got to be. That's when you get to the person, when they've raised their hand. There's a gap there because if they need detox, if they need inpatient, which for heroin and things like that, or, or, or the Tucci now, which is people are smoking Raid and Roach Killer. Um, she was talking about synthetic marijuana. That's, that's, what, that's what they put in there. Can you imagine when you were a young kid going, hey, you want to go smoke some Raid? You know, that's like so far. But, but, um, but there's a gap there because if you don't have insurance or I, I called a place for them and they said, well, $15,000 up front self-pay. Do they have it? No. Okay. So you know what I did? I got a hold of this guy, Tim Ryan, up in Naperville, Illinois, man, um, uh, man in recovery. Um, and I got a hold of, I called him, and he said, yeah, have him call this guy, blah, blah, blah. Next day, he was in a detox place, in, of all places, Cleveland, Ohio, for 10 days, and then six months at a, a recovery, inpatient recovery place in South Carolina. Um, so, but to, to have to work that hard, you know, it, we shouldn't have to work that hard. It should be like, bam, we have a solution. Well, um, and there, there's such big residual impact, right, of those. We've got, um, I, I'm, of course, a board member at uh, Family Advocates, so we deal with a lot of kids in CASA, uh, a lot of kids that have been taken from their homes from, you know, much of it is because of drug abuse and things like this. Um, so that impacts that. And then these other things, education, we can talk about how drug abuse uh, has impacted education and everything. How, who, if people are in here saying, okay, I want to help be a part of making this right in our community. We care about our neighborhoods. We care about our streets. Who do you talk to? What do you do? Do you talk to the governor? Do you talk to the mayor? Do you talk, who do you talk to? Well, one thing, I do want to do a quick shout out um, to Donna. Um, Donna is a recovery coach, and um, she, she can get people set Hi, up with um, insurance, and she, she will get things moving. Um, but I will say that um, if you are uh, good at yoga, if you're good at meditation, if you're good at any other thing that can allow people to... Um, uh, really find a way to to cope in different ways talk to me <laughs> uh, because that's one of the things we're trying to 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 continuously build on is really um, is it's those coping skills are so important um, but I other than that I would call the governor too <laughs> I, I want to call whoever will listen I want to I want to go back to your question about in the community um, there's always more because the problem is not getting better, it's getting worse for alcohol and heroin in LaPorte County. And, and I have all the statistics. I won't, I won't bore everybody to death, but I'm kind of an analytical guy. Um, but if you're interested, go on to the Healthcare Foundation uh, website, the 10, what is it, 10, 20, 10, 20, 30. 10, 20, 30, the county rankings. 
Um, Just Google 10, 20, 30. Google 10, 20, 30, and the uh, county rankings are there. LaPorte County is one of the worst counties in Indiana for heroin, for alcohol arrests, for public intoxication. And the trend lately over the last two years for alcohol is getting worse. Um, and the heroin deaths and heroin overdoses is also getting worse over the last two, three years. LaPorte, uh, Michigan City, LaPorte County is one of the worst. So the, the issue is getting worse in our homeland in LaPorte. Um, but I will say also that going back to the fitness piece, we talked beforehand how important this is. SAMHSA publishes... An, uh, Who? An, what is that? What is, what is SAMHSA? Substance Abuse and Mental Health uh, Services Administration. Administration. Federal, federal. It's a federal organization? Federal, okay. yeah. Um, they publish a, a relapse rate of 86% for recovery. Um, for that, everyone trying to get, like trying recovery, yeah. the failure rate is what? 86%. Do you know how many people with diabetes have their blood sugar always below, their A1C always below 6? 86%? Zero. I mean, nobody can do that. But Every disease has relapses. I, I understand. But, uh, but we're an evidence-based program. So the Intrepid Phoenix in the first year had a relapse rate of 27%. Now, I'm not saying exercise is the answer. But exercise on top of other things. So I, I, I would agree. I, I think there should be more, you know, there's more collaboration. I think in the nonprofit world, uh, I think there's more we can do with each other uh, collaboratively to help each other uh, than, than we currently do. I'm going to make a call for activism, actually. All right. So, you know, you're going to have elections in November. You can ask everybody who's, who's running for commissioner, for example, and you can also push the hospital administrators to create a uh, an organi to create a team that would fund a place in the hospital for detox, and that place would be connected with the step down with the warm handout. Uh, from one person to the other, from one phase to the other. It has to start with uh, the ability to detox people whenever they say, I need help, and recognize they might be there two, three, four, five times. This is, and not give up on that person. They might need to be there many times. But we do need a, a safe place where we can admit people, where hospitals would recognize there is a problem, and the, commission, the commissioners would pay uh, they will have to find some funds from somewhere. God knows they spend it on things that they don't need to. So they, so, so they can be Hello. targeting. <laughs> they can be targeting their their money to create a substance abuse center for the county, for God's sake, and not just talk. And and I do want to say, um, for instance, in drug court, we haven't. Um, Choices has an 85 percent. Um, success rate for three years. So that's what they're checking on. Um, and one thing that, that is really important there is there's drug testing, random, frequent. And because that is when um, you can really find who's, who's really 
on following the program or not following the program. If they don't follow the program, that's okay, but we just want to know it because then we can go back and say, tell me what your thinking was three weeks ago or you know, before you used this last week because relapse happens weeks before the relapse. And so you really have to do a lot of, a lot of um, detective work with, with um, the client because they may not quite realize what it is that, that might be a trigger. And so it's really um, important to figure that out. Um, I, I, just to give a quick, again, plug, next month, uh, Judge Friedman, who runs the drug court here in town, uh, or in LaPorte County, will be here. Uh, so she, I'm sure, will be able to answer some of those questions as well as we talk about criminal justice reform and things like that. Um, we'll end um, with this question that we always end with. Um, it's a, a question because we, we want to leave here with hope, right? I mean, we don't come in here to be depressed about what this is. We come in here to be informed. We come in here to hopefully find better solutions to the problems that kind of are in our, our, our community. So what I like to ask every, every panelist uh, before we leave is, uh, Larry, what, what brings you hope? What brings me hope? Um, for me, God, my faith. It brings you hope, huh? I, put, I surrendered my will and my life to him, and I trust unconditionally. Absolutely. Paula, what brings you hope? Well, I'll, I'll agree with God. Well, um, he kind of Jesus juked you there, so there's no... But, who, who's going to be like, well, I don't want to... But let me... I know what it's you, hard. What do you yeah, say to that, that right? Too, yeah. Yeah, I let, mean, me, let me add the other thing, and that is um, watching hope in people. Um, for me, a relapse is not a failure. A relapse is, okay, we found the next wall, so let's get to it and let's go down there. So... Um, they do call me Pollyanna sometimes, but, but it's, I, I'm a pretty steel-handed Pollyanna, too, um, in that there's always, there's always change. And the only way change happens is if you participate. So as long as people are working at it, I have total hope. Dr. Nasser, what brings you hope? Whatever you're doing here tonight, this is really uh, education and uh, being talking about it, being informed about it, and hopefully go out and vote the right way. Uh, the, there are plenty of scientific advances in the treatment of uh, addictions uh, with medications that help reduce the rate, and more and more data about the behavior therapy, about the, uh, the uh, value of AA and meetings and group therapy. So, so there are, there's a lot that so a lot more in the media. Taking two hours of their time to come and listen to this, I think that's the best thing that happens. Um, so I, I was thinking about how to end this, um, and, and I, I just wanted to end with this, this quick thing. As you guys know, those of you that come to State Street know that uh, my mother was an alcoholic, and I, I talk about uh, her alcoholism that ultimately really did her in. Um, she died uh, at 37. And, um, and, and I think a lot about what I would say to her if I saw her again, because I didn't at, at 15 know how to deal with her addiction real well. And I think I would tell her that 
um, I, I don't, A, first, I love you, because um, I do. Um, even when my frustration comes out, I do. And I don't blame you. I don't blame you for your, your addiction. Um, you're loved, and I don't blame you. Um, because there's so much shame and guilt wrapped up in addiction uh, that for those of you that are listening through Facebook Live or for those of you that are here that are struggling with addiction, I want you to know that you're loved and that you're not alone and that we don't blame you. And so you can come out of the shadows. Uh, you can be honest about it. You can be transparent about it because that is the best way. Uh, to start your treatment. So, I want to thank our panelists tonight. Uh, we will post this on discussionoverdinner.com. Um, you'll be able to go there and we will uh, get with these uh, fine panelists and we can post any links that you guys want, any studies, any links, any kinds of things there. Um, don't forget to come to our next one, which is in September on criminal justice. Um, again, Thank you so much for being here. We are so grateful that you're here. Have a great night. Uh, fine panelists, and we can post any links that you guys want, any studies, any links, any kinds of things there. Um, don't forget to come to our next one, which is in September on criminal justice. Um, again, thank you so much for being here. We are so grateful that you're here. Have a great night.